Once again, good morning. If you're new with us, welcome. Uh, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And um, we have recently entered into chapter 17, which I, I can say without fear of contradiction that it's the most profound, the most holy prayer in all the Bible. It's the real Lord's Prayer, right? What we call the Lord's Prayer, Jesus could never have prayed, right? Matthew 6, what, 9 to 11, 13? Forgive me my sins as I forgive others who have sinned against me. Come on, right? Jesus could never have prayed that prayer. That's the disciples' prayer. That's our prayer. When the disciples asked the Lord to teach us how to pray, he gave us a model prayer. No, no, this is the real Lord's Prayer, and it's incredible. Uh, as we have been studying it. Now, uh, for the sake of the new folks, the evening began in the upper room. And uh, Jesus ate the Passover meal with his closest men, 12 in all. During the Passover meal, Judas got up and left the room to carry out his betrayal of Christ. Jesus launched into a final teaching that was very important, things that were on his heart and mind. He was only hours from the cross. And so he really wanted to communicate to them one more time before the cross because they were going to be devastated. It wasn't for his benefit. Okay, it was for theirs. Because in a few hours, all their hopes and dreams were going to be dashed. They had put all their trust that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah who was going to be bringing the kingdom. And now he's going to be crucified, dead, buried for three days. They didn't know that. He told them that. They, their brains shut off. When he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and wicked men are going to take me and crucify me, but on the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. You know, what do you mean you're going to be crucified? Click. Their brain shut off. They never heard the last part. On the third day I'm going to rise, they was, rise from the dead. They were taken by surprise that resurrection Sunday morning. Anyway, we'll get to that. But he begins to teach them one final message before the cross. And uh, at the end of chapter 14 of John's Gospel, they leave the upper room, start making their way through the streets of Jerusalem, and eventually the temple precincts, uh, to exit the city, cross the Kidron Valley, where Jesus would spend the remaining few hours in prayer before being arrested, put on trial, and crucified. They stop at the Golden Gate, and in the light of the moon, because it was Passover time, always took place at the time of the full moon, uh, he taught them uh, John 15. Uh, the vine and the branches. There were, there were uh, grape vines carved into these doors. That's what history tells us. And I believe he stopped there, and in the light of the moon, before exiting the city, he taught them this incredible teaching about the vine and the branches. How he's the vine, we're the branches, his father is the vine dresser. You can go back and, and listen to that tape, uh, that to study. From there, Jesus continues to teach them in chapter 16. And then, as we come to chapter 17, he stops teaching his disciples and starts praying to his Father. Again, the most incredible prayer in all the Word of God. It's God praying to God. Wow. We're getting a little peek into the Holy of Holies. Uh, this is incredible, guys. And um, this prayer is simply divided up into three main points. Where Jesus prays for himself, Jesus prays for his disciples, those that had been following him, for the last three and a half years. Then he ends by praying for all of his disciples down through history, which would include every Christian in this room this morning. 
Jesus Christ prayed for you. Well, that should be no shock. He ascended back to heaven and continues to pray for us. He's our intercessor, right? And so on. So we've been looking at that first part, verses 1 to 5. Jesus prays for himself. Verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Guys, as we pointed out, the theme of John's gospel is eternal life. He said that at the end of his gospel, many other things Jesus did that I can't contain, you know, in this one writing. He did so many miracles that all the books in the world probably couldn't contain them, which is a little, no doubt, hyperbole, but Jesus did a lot of miracles, right? Um, but I've chosen these that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name, life, life, eternal life, all the way through 54 times. In his gospel, John talks about eternal life because he desperately wants people to receive it. He's a true evangelist. No evangelist wants to see anyone go to hell. I don't care if they're the worst person on the face of the earth. We want to see people saved. You know, that's our heart that God's given us because that was his heart. We know from Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said that was in fact the very thing that brought him to the earth in the first place, to seek and to save those who were lost, or in other words, to give people eternal life. John 17 contains a very intimate prayer that Jesus offered to his Father, which consisted of the most of the most important things that were on his heart that night right before he was going to be crucif crucified. Again, when you're facing death, um, you know you know your time is short. You gather the people closest to you around your bed or whatever you are, and you want to share with them some of the lessons that you've learned from life, important lessons that you want to pass on to them in your absence now. Well, Jesus in a very short time was going to be passing on the work of the kingdom to his disciples. I mean, very shortly he was going to be crucified, three days later rise from the dead, 40 days after that he was going to send back to his father, and they would be taking up the mantle. They would be going forth into all the world to preach the good news to everybody, right? So in light of all that, the Lord now begins to share with them what was most important to him that they would understand and hear one more time that's what john 17 is basically he's not teaching them directly but as he's praying to his father they're eavesdropping like we are when we read this chapter and in eavesdropping they learned a whole bunch of things about what was on his heart and what was in his heart as what we've been looking at okay and the very first thing guys the very first thing he talked about with his father was the life that the father had sent him the son to give to the world to give to anyone who would receive it again this was the life of god or eternal life verse three and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent Eternal life is not about what you do to earn it. It's about who you know to receive it. The Greek word for know 
is gnosko. This is a word that often, not always, but often in Scripture, New Testament, speaks of a deep love relationship. The kind of relationship that a person enters into with Jesus when they commit themselves to him by faith. Jesus said in John 14, I'm sorry, John 10, verses 14 and 15. He said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my sheep. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. When Jesus talks about knowing his sheep, and us knowing him. He uses the Greek word gnosko, which means to know by experience. What does that mean? Well, it's not the kind of head knowledge that comes from studying and practicing religion, like the scribes, Pharisees, and chief priests had. They had head knowledge about God, but they didn't have a deep love relationship with God in their heart. Gnosko knowledge speaks of the very intimate knowledge that, you know, a husband and wife have with each other in marriage. We read about this in the Old Testament, that Cain knew his wife, and she bore him a son. In the New Testament, how Joseph didn't know Mary until after Jesus was born. I mean, that's not a superficial knowledge that's being talked about. It's the deepest kind of intimate relationship a husband and wife can have with each other. That very deep sexual intimacy, right? And so the knowledge that brings eternal life. Now, let me just say this. We have talked about eternal life many, many times. You've been coming to Calvary for any time. You know that, in fact, most of what I'm going to teach this morning, you've heard me teach before. But since... This was the theme of John's gospel. And since this was the first thing out of the mouth of Jesus when he lifted up his high priestly prayer to his father, eternal life, we really need to understand this life. We started it a couple weeks ago. Last week took a little detour uh, when we talked about Jesus being on a definite timetable and how we should be also. I want to come back now and, and finish that earlier study we kind of got into a couple weeks ago. Um, but this is a very important subject. Now, please hear me out. I'm going to say some things. If you don't listen carefully and listen continually, don't shut your, don't click on me. Uh-oh, click. He's teaching heresy. No, I'm not teaching heresy. Hang in there, okay? I just believe from all the studies I've done over the years about this subject, I'm going to give to you what I believe is the, the condensed version of what the New Testament teaches on the subject of eternal life, okay? Let me just go back and say this. The knowledge that brings eternal life is a deep, intimate knowledge that a person enters into when they commit themselves to Jesus as their Savior. In other words, it isn't a casual superficial head knowledge based solely on facts. It's not enough to simply believe that God exists, in other words. 
This will never save a lost soul from the eternal fires of hell. James tells us in his epistle that even the demons believe and tremble. Right? James 2, verse 19. And James' point is that passive faith, mere head knowledge is what I'm talking about. Passive faith is not the kind of faith that saves. I mean, even the demons believe the facts about Jesus and the gospel, that he is, he's, was the virgin-born Son of God who died for the sins of humanity on the third day, rose again bodily from the grave, right? The demons knew all of that. They, the demons were there to see it firsthand. They saw it with their own eyes. This idea that, you know, demons, because they saw everything we believe, they saw it happen. I could make an argument or a case that their faith is stronger than ours. That they believe everything we believe about Jesus Christ. And yet Satan and his demons, even though they believe the facts of the gospel, they certainly won't be spending heaven, eternity in heaven, will they? At this point, I could just hear somebody, maybe not in this room, online, maybe watching down the road, so, are you saying that a person is not saved by faith alone? It sounds like you're teaching that it's faith plus human effort, commitment, that saves a person from hell. No, I am not saying that we are saved by faith plus works of any kind. We are saved by faith alone. Amen. But listen to me. There is a difference between the kind of faith that saves and the kind of faith that doesn't save. And listen, our eternity depends on what, which one of those two we have. There's a faith that saves. There's a faith that doesn't save. And we had better make sure we have the right faith in our hearts, right? See, I'm not going to be dramatic and tell you this keeps me up at night. But almost. Because I don't want anyone to ever stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, and we'll talk about this more in a second, and hear him say, I never knew you depart from me. Your faith wasn't real. And them looking at me from standing before the Lord and saying, Pastor, you gave me the impression that I was fine with the Lord. Because, you know, now I'm hearing that the kind of faith I had didn't save me. Look, if anyone goes to hell who comes to church and believes with their heads in Jesus Christ, if they go to hell, it's not going to be my fault. I am determined to give you the whole truth on this subject, and then you can wrestle with it. You can say, ah, you're out to lunch, or whatever. Or use the information, hopefully, to get right with God. My, my point is, let's not assume anything. Examine yourself, the Bible says, to make sure you are in the faith, right? We have to be sure. But let me just say it again. There's a lot of people who have grown up in church that really do believe the facts about Jesus and the gospel, and yet they're not saved. Folks, I was one of them. I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I went to Catholic grade school, mass all the time. Got married in the Catholic church. Cindy went to, to Catholic high school. Everything 
I believe about Jesus today, I believed about Jesus back then. Yet I wasn't saved. Well, why was that? If it's just having the head knowledge. Because it isn't just about having the head knowledge. Look, I'm not putting head knowledge down. At one point, somebody's got to share the gospel with you. It's got to enter in your brain at one point. God doesn't put it there through osmosis. I mean, you know, either you're watching TV and a, 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 a evangelist is on the TV or you're talking to another believer at work or here in church, uh, you're visiting and, and all, or you're reading a track. At one point, the information has to enter into our heads and become head knowledge. It's true, right? But that's not enough to get us into heaven, to get anybody into heaven, unless you take the next step and receive Jesus into your heart by committing your life to him. And again, some would scream, that's works. No, it isn't. That's saving faith. In John chapter 1, verse 12, we read, But as many as received him, as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now, John reverses the order for emphasis. But here's what he's really saying. As many as believe in Jesus and receive Jesus, these are the ones that God gave the right to be, to be called the children of God. Guys, saving faith is believing in Jesus with your head. That's true. That's where it starts. But then salvation only comes when you receive him into your heart as your Savior. It's what some have called believing to the point of commitment. Believing to the point of commitment. Let me illustrate it this way. Someone can believe that the person they are dating is the most wonderful person they've ever met. I'm sure my wife felt that way about me <laughs> when we started to date. Well, maybe a little bit. She married me, so, you know. Um, but... Look, someone can believe that the person that they are dating is the most wonderful person they've ever met. Someone they can see themselves spending the rest of their life with in marriage, right? But unless they actually believe to the point of commitment by pledging their life to that person, a member of the opposite sex, sorry I should have to even say that, but we're living in crazy times. I'm just talking about God's design. One man, one woman for life. That's marriage. But a person, a couple doesn't actually enter into marriage until they pledge their life to that person. Standing before God in their wedding day and vowing to love and be loyal to that person for the rest of their lives. Until they have done that, folks, they haven't actually entered into marriage. The same is true when we talk about Jesus and salvation. A person can believe that Jesus Christ is the most wonderful person that has ever lived. Of course he believes. He's God, Right? They can believe who Jesus is and what he did for them. They can believe he's the most wonderful person that's ever lived, the only true Savior of mankind. Great. But unless they take the next step and enter into a relationship with Jesus, where they make a commitment to him, as in marriage, where they pledge to love him above all others and be committed to him for the rest of their life, well, until they have done that, they haven't actually entered into salvation. It's the commitment that brings about the relationship 
that puts you in Christ, that saves you from the fires of hell, which is what saving faith is all about. And that's why the Bible talks about salvation in marriage terms, doesn't it? Calling Jesus our bridegroom and Christians the bride of Christ. Why did God put it that way? Why did God choose that metaphor, that illustration? Because he was trying to communicate that the kind of faith that saves is not mere head knowledge, superficial stuff. It's the kind of faith that brings you into a relationship, gnosko, where you know somebody deeply and intimately. You're not a superficial churchgoer. You have made a deep abiding commitment to Jesus Christ. And it shows by the way you talk and think and live. I know it does me. I mean, I don't believe, and I, you could argue with me. You could, you know, they, people can call me a heretic. But some people get very nervous when you start messing with faith. Right? They're so terrified of entering into anything that, that contains works that, you know, they're, they freak out if you even suggest anyone can believe and not be saved. But I don't get that. There's all kinds of examples of people who have believed and yet not been saved. Now let's start with the devil and his demons. You don't choose to be, you don't become a Christian, what I'm saying, until you're willing to enter into the deepest kind of relationship with Jesus that two people can enter into, the marriage covenant. New Testament, really new covenant. This is what we're talking about. This is what the new covenant is. It's a marriage covenant that you enter into when you receive Jesus as your bridegroom. And you become his bride. And even though physical marriage isn't perfect, and marriage vows are sometimes broken, when you're married and one person is unfaithful, it's devastating. It's heartbreaking. But it doesn't automatically make the marriage null and void. In the eyes of God, that marriage still stands. Now, you can bail if your spouse is guilty of adultery. You have a legal biblical out. But I believe God wants to work through reconciliation, restoration. In fact, I believe that marriages that have suffered infidelity have gone on to be Christian marriages even stronger than they ever were. Because you don't really appreciate something phenomenal until you're ready to lose it. But the point is that using marriage as an illustration of this, when two sinners saved by grace enter into marriage, they pledge to be faithful, right, to each other. It doesn't always happen. But the marriage still stands. It's broken. It needs to be worked on by God's grace, fixed, and even made better than it ever was. But the marriage still stands. The same is true when a person makes a commitment to Jesus Christ. He's never unfaithful. Let's just get that out. He is never his problem. He's always faithful to us. But we often aren't faithful to him, are we? 
We let other love sometimes get into our hearts and take precedence over our love for Jesus. And sometimes it's nothing evil. Read Revelation chapter 2, the letter of Ephesus. They let ministry become their first love. It doesn't have to be something wicked, you know. It doesn't have to be where, you know, you've let another um, uh, uh, money or being successful or becoming famous as an actor or whatever become your first love. It could be anything that creeps in there and begins to steal your time, attention, affection from Jesus. What does he do if that happens? I disown you. Get out of my sight. No. Remember your first love. Come back to me. Remember your first. Remember how it was when we first got engaged. Come back to me. I want you to be my first love. I want to be your first love, right? So I'm not talking about that when I use this illustration. Because you could say, well, you know, you're talking about marriage, and marriage is, is you know, uh, is fragile at times and, 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 and so on and so forth. I mean, and they try to relate that to our relationship with Jesus. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that if you've truly entered into a relationship with Jesus that sometimes your relationship can't get cold. Something else might slip in there and take the place of your first love with him, an idol of some kind. I'm really not talking about that. I'm talking about people having salvation, entering into it. The problem with many churchgoers today is, and probably always has been, but I'll just leave it today. Now, let me just say this. I'm not sure I said it. When we mess up and maybe um, are unfaithful to Jesus, God chastens us, and we have to bring it to him. But he doesn't end the marriage. The, our relationship with Jesus is secure. we got to work on it. Abiding in him, but it's not over. The problem with too many in the church today, too many churchgoers is they want to date Jesus, but are not really serious about making a commitment to him. I mean, here the Lord is proposing marriage to them. Salvation, eternal life. And their response is basically, I just want to date Jesus. I just want to be friends. You know, as he's reaching out to them with those nail-scarred hands. I love you. Come to me. Let's have a marriage relationship with each other. I want to give you eternal life. Well, yeah, uh, I just want to be friends, Jesus. As they continue then to date the Lord. What do I mean? I'll go to church, you know. um, Ask the Lord to bless their jobs or bless their businesses or, or bless their families on earth. They want the benefits of having a relationship with Jesus. It's just that it's a superficial, selfish relationship and not one where they're willing to give him their whole life. Take me, Lord. I belong to you. You died for me. And now I just want you to be my my king, my sovereign Lord, right? But I believe, guys, that there could be no salvation, no eternal life, without believing in Jesus to the point of commitment and receiving him 
as your Savior, your Bridegroom, your Lord. Uh, receiving Him, entering into a relationship with Him by covenant. It's a commitment. It's a vow. That's what marriage is all about. So guys, eternal life is a quality of existence that knows God. Knows God. Now you know what we talk, what we mean when we say knows God. Look at verse 3 again. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We could paraphrase Jesus' words this way, and I quote, Eternal life brings Excuse me, eternal life belongs to those who are connected to God in the deepest way possible. Those who are one with Him in the deepest, most intimate kind of union as in marriage. Now, we talk about eternal life. The alternative to eternal life is eternal death. I mean, we can't really talk about eternal life without looking at the flip side which is eternal death. You know, just as spiritual life is being connected to God through Jesus Christ, His Son, God's Son, eternal death is being separated from God for all eternity by rejecting Jesus Christ as your Savior again, by not believing in Him to the point of commitment. The Bible says that hell is forever. And calls it everlasting fire. It's a place where the worm, the worm of decay, never dies and the fire of judgment is never quenched. Hell is called the lake of fire, a place in the outer darkness which burns with fire and brimstone, and where there will be never ending weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where all believers where all unbelievers are sent, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, Peter tells us. And John tells us, Revelation chapter 14, those who are sent there shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Jesus said that even as heaven is eternal, so is hell. John, excuse me, Matthew 25, verse 46. Guys, there are only two choices that a person has when it comes to eternity. Receiving Jesus and having eternal life or rejecting Jesus and having or suffering eternal death. You say, not me, I'm neutral. I, I don't choose either one of those options. I got some bad news for you. Jesus said, either you're for me or what? You're against me. There is no neutrality when it comes to this subject. So you're either for Jesus or by default you're against Jesus. This idea that people have, well, I'm not religious. I don't find any of that garbage, right? I don't choose Jesus. I don't reject Jesus. I'm neutral. No, you're not. Because you were born a son of the devil, a daughter of the devil. You can read 1 John again, around chapter 3. Talks about the sons of God and the sons of the devil. We were all born into this world as fallen sinners. In other words, children of the devil, children of wrath, doomed for destruction. So the idea is that 
when you choose Jesus, you choose the one who came to rescue you. He entered this world on a search and rescue mission. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. We're all, we were all on our way to hell. I mean, Jesus said that in John 3, right? I have not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. He who believes is not condemned. He who believes does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Listen, we are everybody is on their way to hell. Jesus came into this world on a search and rescue mission. You believe in him, he rescues you out of the fires of the, the coming fires of hell. You become a child of God. You are given eternal life. Look at verse 3 again. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We are living. I have to tell you guys this, you know. We are living in a very pluralistic society today where people have embraced many different gods and believe in many different roads that will get them to heaven if they even believe in heaven at all. But when Jesus called himself and his Father the only true God, it implied, obviously, that he believed that there are false gods in this world that people have embraced. Of course there are. I'll read these to you. We don't have time to turn to them all. You can write down the references. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In, the Son, in His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. That life is only in the Son. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, a title for Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. Verse 4, in Him, and the, and the, uh, uh, the ideas, in Him alone was life. The life of God. Eternal life. Acts 4.12, Peter said, to those he was witnessing to, the Sanhedrin. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's only Jesus. And of course, Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, where Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, eternal life, and few ever find it. Now, there's a lot there that I just don't have time to get into this morning. You can go online and listen to the study we did when we did Matthew. Let me just say this to you, though. People think that the two ways, that the broad way is marked this way to hell and the narrow way is marked this way to heaven. That is untrue. That was not Jesus' point, because he goes on to say, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He's talking about people who would pervert the right way to God. No, this broad way is marked this way to God, but it's the broad way of religion and tolerance, inclusiveness. doesn't matter what you believe, only that you believe something. 
That's what Jesus was warning us against. The narrow way is the cross, the way of the cross. It's Jesus, right? And by the way, many enter by the narrow gate, right? Do you realize that the word in the Greek for gate is a word that means turnstile? You cannot get through a turnstile with multiple people unless you want to suffer some serious injury. You have to enter a turnstile one person at a time. That's the idea behind a turnstile. In other words, you don't get saved by being a group. Oh, my Bible group, you know, everyone's a pretty strong Christian. I've been going there. You know, you don't get saved by being a member of a Bible group. Well, my mom was a Christian, so was my dad. I think my family's covered. No, you don't get into heaven by being a part of a Christian family. Every person has to come to Jesus themselves. People enter into the kingdom of heaven one person at a time. Let's go back to John 17 and let's just end with verse 4. I have glorified you, Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What did Jesus mean by this statement? In what way did he glorify his Father on the earth? And just what was the work the Father had given him to do? Well, let me just say this. We could probably get into this in much greater detail. I'm going to simplify it. I don't think it needs to be complicated. The work Jesus came to fulfill on earth was basically twofold. Twofold. First of all, to show this world primarily the Jewish people, and I'll tell you why I want to emphasize that in a moment, but he came in part to show this world, primarily the Jewish people, what God was really like. And secondly, of course, to die on Calvary's cross to redeem us back to God by paying our debt, our sins. Now the first statement, he came into the world to show the world what God was really like, is embodied in the statement, I have glorified you on the earth. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks, but because we're picking up that study, basically, we started a couple of weeks ago. Let me just quickly repeat, okay? I have glorified your name, Father, on the earth. God's glory involves or encompasses, listen, his intrinsic, eternal attributes in other words the qualities that are only found in his divine nature you will not find these qualities yeah cheap counterfeits you'll find on the earth you will not find these actual qualities on the earth through any fallen human being because they are in, they are inherent in god's nature and his nature alone the only one who could show god's nature on the earth is god himself is god himself and that's what Jesus did. He demonstrated to the people of this world, primarily the nation of Israel, what God was really like. I mean, these are qualities that are only found in his divine nature. The love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. Through Jesus' life, death, resurrection. He put these and other attributes of God on display for the world to see. Things like God's power to defeat his enemies his justice, his holiness, his righteousness, his judgment against sin, his goodness and wisdom. We've talked about all that. 
And when Jesus came to the earth, he demonstrated what God was really like. This, he, this allowed him to glorify his Father by putting God's attributes on display, allowing again the world to see what God was really like. Turn to John 14. Now, they're still in the upper room, and they haven't left yet, and Jesus is talking about his Father, talking about his mission, why he came to the earth, and so on, and obeying his Father, and so and so, and such and such. And at one point, verse 7, John 14, verse 7, I'll read to you the NLT second edition. He said to his disciples, if you had really known me, you would have known who my, who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? Look, if we were to ask any average churchgoer, why did Jesus come to the earth I am convinced upon hearing that question, most would immediately respond to die on Calvary's cross to save us from our sins. And they would be absolutely right. Of course he did. But that isn't the only reason Jesus came to the earth. They came to show people, especially again the Jewish people, who were the original covenant people of God, what God was really like. In 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, that which was from the beginning, talking about Jesus Christ, the word of life, Jesus. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. You see the word manifested there used twice. Uh, the word manifested comes from the Greek word that means to cause to become visible, to make appear, to cause to be seen. It reminds us of what Paul said about Jesus in Colossians 1.15, where Paul said, He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The Greek word translated image was used of an image made by impression, as when Caesar's image was stamped on a coin. Paul was telling us that God the Father, listen, stamped, quote-unquote, his image on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and this allowed man to see what God was really like. I mean, God is spirit, right? And is therefore invisible. But through the incarnation, the invisible God became a visible flesh and blood man. Remember in our study in Revelation chapter 1, how we read in verse 5 that it said of Jesus that he was a faithful witness. A faithful witness. In a court of law, a witness testifies to what they have seen, right? Jesus, having been in heaven with the Father, obviously had seen the Father. And then he came to earth and testified to the people of this world, primarily the Jewish people, testified on behalf of his Father. In other words, Jesus came to earth in part to bear witness to the people 
of this fallen world, again, especially the Jewish nation, what God was really like. You see, and I had this confirmed by one of our Jewish believers in church last message, first service. She came up and afterward and said, you are absolutely right about this. See, the Jewish people had gotten a warped understanding and impression of God over the years, primarily because they tried to relate to God through the law, through religion, which kept, which they kept breaking. Try to relate to God through the law, they, but they kept breaking the law, right? And so they kept reaping the judgment of God upon themselves and the nation for breaking God's holy law. You want to relate to God through commandments, ordinances, through laws? You're never going to get a right impression of God. And because they kept trying to relate to God all throughout the Old Testament uh, through the law, which they kept breaking and kept reaping God's judgment, it caused them to believe that God was nothing more than, listen, a vengeful, wrathful, fire-breathing God that they were always terrified of. A God they had a hard time drawing close to. And this gal said after her first service, she said, you know, when I grew up, I, I grew up, you know, Jewish. I didn't get saved until I was older. And I, I grew up, you know, going to Jewish school. And, you know, for us Jews, you know, we, we believed in God that he was out there. But we never really got close to him because we were always afraid of him. That kind of thing, you know. That had to break God's heart, that so many of his people were afraid of him. Couldn't get close to him because in their minds he was just a wrathful, vengeful, fire-breathing God that if you step out of line at any way, shape, or form, he brings the hammer down on you and squashes you. Try, try to get close to a God like that, right? So Jesus came to set the record straight. Let me end with this. He came to set the record straight. I'll read to you John 1, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who was in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. The Greek word means to make Him manifest, to uh, make Him known. I'll read it to you out of the New Living Translation, second edition. No one has ever seen God, and the idea is in all of His fullness and glory. No one has ever seen God, but the, but the one and only Son Himself, excuse me, but the only one and only Son is Himself God and is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Author Warren Worsby said, and I quote, God has revealed Himself in creation. Well, that's Romans 1.20. But creation alone would never tell us the story of God's love. God has also revealed himself much more fully in his word, the Bible. But God's final and most complete revelation is in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father, end quote. And so, guys, Paul declared in Colossians 1, verse 15, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, or in other words, he is the perfect manifestation of the Father in human form. Which means if you want to know what God the Father is like, all you have to do is look at Jesus. Now let me just close by saying this, because it's a big subject. And I'm, I don't think we'll 
come back and explore all of it next week. I want to move on in studying Jesus' prayer. But let me just say this to you. There have been many children, maybe some of you in this very room, who are abused by your earthly fathers. Maybe it was verbal abuse. That's bad enough. You're a stupid, dumb, you'll, you'll never amount to anything. I'm ashamed of you. I'm embarrassed of you. I want nothing to do with you. That's bad enough, right? There are many fathers, though, that have, you know, abused their daughters sexually or have abused their kids with violence. And then those children grow up. And by the grace of God, they get saved. If you've never experienced that, it's easy for us to say, well, just forget about all that. You're a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Are we going to passing out the platitudes? It's true. But the Bible says weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Be of the same mind toward each other. It's easy to dismiss somebody with a Bible verse. Get over it. There's a lot of folks who want to get over it. They want desperately to think of their heavenly father in a, a new way than they thought of their earthly father, but it's hard. Because every time they think of the father speaking to them, it's always in their earthly father's voice. Every time they fail, you're a dummy. You're no good. You'll never amount to anything. They imagine their heavenly father is saying in their earthly father's voice. So how do they get out of that? How do you get reprogrammed from something like that? How do you begin to realize that your father in heaven is nothing like your earthly father was? I'll tell you a good place to start. Look at Jesus. Look at how Jesus handled sinners. The woman caught in the very act of adultery, the law said she should have been stoned to death. I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Every time Jesus handled sinners, it was with love, compassion, and forgiveness. Never once do you hear the Lord Jesus say, you're a loser. I am so sick and tired of you following me. You're bringing me down. You're, you're giving me a bad name. Why do you follow that rabbi? You never hear Jesus say things like that. Next time you read the Gospels, imagine you are seeing Jesus representing the Father. I do always those things that please my Father. He is the perfect representation, the perfect manifestation of God the Father in human form. And so next time you blow it, and we're all going to blow it, you don't hear your earthly father mocking, condemning. You hear the voice of God. All right. All right. You stumbled and fell. That's what learning how to walk is all about. Now you come to me. You draw close to me. And if you stay close to me, you'll do better next time. It's all about me giving you the strength. That's our Father in heaven. Our earthly fathers, 
earthly mothers? They were just kids who grew up and had kids. But our Father in heaven, He's God. He's perfect. He is perfect in love to all those who call upon Him. Let's never forget that. And if you ever doubt, if you ever let the devil begin to cause you to think, well, maybe God doesn't love me as much as he says. Turn to Romans 5, verse 8, which says, if anyone doubts the love of God for them as a believer, look at Jesus hanging on the cross. That should put to rest all doubt. No greater love than Jesus giving his life for sinners. And how much more so now does he Love us now that we're his children, right? So we will continue by God's grace next week. Right now, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great love wherewith you loved us that sent your son to this earth. And Jesus, we know that no man took your life from you. You gave it freely for the sheep. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you. And Lord, give us grace to draw close to you, to um, enjoy you, Lord. You're not against us. If you are for us, who can be against us? No one. So give us grace, Lord, to draw close to you without fear or condemnation. And we might just come boldly into your presence like little children into their father's office jumping on your lap, enjoying your fellowship. You love us. You want us to call you Abba, Father, Papa, Daddy. Give us the grace, Lord, to think of you that way. We love you. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.